You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. This podcast is brought to you in association with BHA Medical. BHA Medical source, supply, implement and innovate medical technology solutions across the globe. BHA provide market-leading services in COVID-19 testing kits, medical products, smart technology and consultancy. One of the most recent devices they sell is the D-Heart. D-Heart is the first smartphone ECG device that's simple to use, clinically reliable, portable and affordable. It allows anyone to perform a hospital-level ECG in total autonomy and to send the results to a 24-7 telecardiography service or to your trusted doctor. So the app guides you to perform a professional ECG. It also has a Bluetooth ECG streaming in real time. It's got medical grade ECG technology, so 12 to 60 seconds of recording. You can charge the device directly in the case and the sleek design and manufacturing. So please see the show notes for further information. So welcome back to the pre-hospital care podcast. In this session, we're going to be looking at emergency dispatch with Jerry Overton. Jerry Overton is the president of the International Academies of Emergency Dispatch, the organization charged with setting standards, establishing curriculum, and conducting research for public safety dispatch worldwide. Established in 1988, the International Academies of Emergency Dispatch, or IAED, is the international standard setting and certified body for emergency dispatch across the globe. Currently, its protocols are used in over 2,800 dispatch centers in 38 countries. So as the president of the IAED, Jerry leads the academy which allows advanced core taking, clinical assessment and patient management by evidence-based telephone algorithms. So Jerry has established international relationships for IAED and assists with the development of EMS systems worldwide. In the episode, we talk about um, the importance of dispatch as a concept and model, uh, the, the origins of targeted dispatch and how far we've come, uh, modeling, so dispatch system support tools such as MPDS, ProQA and others. Um, we look at also the historical priority symptoms such as chest pain, difficulty in breathing, changing levels of consciousness and serious hemorrhage. We also look at the importance of compliance to pre-arrival instructions. Uh, we differentiate between pre-arrival instructions and dispatch uh, as two separate domains. We also look at um, some multidisciplinary uh, dispatch from critical care paramedics to midwives to end-of-life care nurses to mental health to GPs. Uh, and we also look at um, some of the nuances of pre-arrival um, dispatch instructions such as um, breathing diagnostic tools and otherwise. Please just enjoy this fantastic episode with someone who is really the forefather of Dispatch and uh, has got great oversight. So Jerry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Ian. It's a pleasure being with you. Jerry, could you, for listeners, just give uh, a little bit of your history and maybe a potted bio into your experience? I've always had an interest in EMS Interestingly enough, even since I was a young child, when uh, back in Independence, Missouri, one of our neighbors actually owned a private ambulance company, and I rode out on an ambulance at the age of 16. However, that was a private ambulance company when I was 16. I'm not 16 anymore, Ian. And that interest developed into becoming an EMT, becoming a paramedic. And when I was in Kansas City, I joined an organization called the Metropolitan Ambulance Services Trust as its assistant director and then became the chief executive. So I was actually the chief executive of the Kansas City, Missouri EMS system. Then when Richmond, Virginia decided to form a brand new EMS system as more of a third service, more like like the English Trust or, you know, here, here in the UK, 
uh, with an authority board. They asked if I might apply for that position and I was fortunate enough to get it. So I was the first director, the first chief executive of the Richmond Ambulance Authority and held that position for 19 years. During my time in Richmond and doing some very innovative things with a very, very good management team, let me tell you, it was an excellent management team. The, um, I was, we were able to maybe work on different projects that people wanted to work on but couldn't. So we were kind of an experimental lab. Things like system status management, things like uh, medical priority dispatch system, for instance, and be able to combine different concepts to have a highly effective, efficient EMS system that focused on clinical outcomes. During that time, I was then approached by, or our system was approached by the US government, specifically USAID, to do partnerships in different parts of the world. And we held and conducted partnerships in. From that inter international experience, um, the International Academies of Emergency Dispatch approached me and asked if I might join them. I thought I'd be in Richmond for maybe 10 years. I was actually there for 19. And it was really time for me to make a move. And uh, the International Academies of Emergency Dispatch, which is obviously to me, close to my heart because of the fact that we were an accredited center of excellence in Richmond. I made the move to uh, Salt Lake City. So I've had a long background in EMS. I really feel like EMS is uh, so worthwhile. As I used to tell my medics in Richmond at every new employee orientation, we're people taking care of people. And from my perspective, that's what we are, is that we're people taking care of people. Jerry, that's fantastic and a real uh, diversity of experience. So re the reason why I wanted to speak to you today is not only with your prolific background, Jerry, but just the overriding um, importance of, of dispatch, really. We were talking offline about how important, because if you don't get the dispatch piece right, the rest of pre-hospital care, how quickly you elicit care to to the patient um does or doesn't fall into fall into place and, and maybe one of my most profound revelations was actually the care that you give to the patient before the ems arrives which is probably sometimes the most fundamental well i think you know dispatch when we talk about call taking and dispatch we're really talking about a couple of different components you know the actual taking of the call and getting that right and then as you just alluded to providing what we call the post-dispatch instructions and you know, the first part is incredibly important now more than ever in the fact that we're in a resource-limited environment. And, you know, when we're looking at wait times outside of hospitals, ambulances waiting outside of hospitals right now uh, in the UK for considerable lengths of time, we need to make sure that the resources that we're assigning to the patients are the right resources. And we're triaging calls, you know, as I like to People ask the question, well, why do you triage a dispatch? And my answer is, if what's the analogous situation is a paramedic responding to a cardiac arrest. We're, you know, we've got an evidence-based approach to the field resuscitation. And we're not going to let paramedic A decide, oh, I'm going to give this drug at this point in resuscitation. And paramedic B decide, oh, I'm not going to give any drugs. And paramedic C decide that they're going to do something else first, you know. They're following their protocols. And it's the same way in call taking, same way in dispatch, because 
dispatch is providing a standard of care, just like the paramedics provide a standard of care. And it's really important because we know that, you know, that in any given system, let's say cardiac arrest are about 2% of the total calls that are coming in. Well, we need to make sure we're getting the other 98% correct to get those 2% correct. And we also need to make sure that when we're in those lower acuity calls that may not need an ambulance, that may need a single paramedic, may need some type of alternative resource, that we can safely do that. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about call taking is that this whole concept of triage and getting that right, getting that accurate, being sensitive and with sensitivity and specificity. That's the first part. And the second part is, as you just again alluded to, is the providing post-dispatch instructions. We know for a fact that the number one thing that's going to save a cardiac arrest patient is good CPR, period. Second is defibrillation. And providing the minimum time for hands-on chest for that caller to do telephone CPR is absolutely one of our major objectives. You know, we've got it down to maybe asking just two or three questions and being able to direct that caller to put hands on chest in, in a matter of seconds. And then, you know, in the old days, we used to say things like, do you want to do telephone CPR? And we were giving people the option to say no. Those days are long gone. Now the situation is you're going to do telephone CPR. And they do. And, you know, it's really interesting. We find very, very little resistance to uh, people actually performing telephone CPR. But it even goes beyond that. You know, when we look at post-dispatch instructions, um, our newest post-dispatch instruction actually is uh, applying a tourniquet in the field for severe hemorrhage. In fact, the dispatcher of the year for us in Australasia was down in Tasmania. It wasn't a childbirth delivery. It wasn't a telephone CPR. It was a person who had cut himself with a um, chainsaw and literally had cut his artery and the call taker using MPDS, using our protocols, was able to direct him to apply a tourniquet, but not only saved his leg, but saved his life. So the whole concept of providing care first is starts at the dispatch center. That that is the first link in the chain of survival. And as was pointed out in an article by Charles Deakins that was published in Resuscitation, where we used to used to think of the concept of a chain of survival as all links are equal. And the article in 2018, he clearly showed that all links are not equal, that the primary link in the chain of survival is going to be what goes on in the communication center. So, Jerry, could you just walk us through the origins of targeted dispatch from your experience? Well, the origins actually started in Salt Lake City by Dr. Jeff Clawson, who was the medical director for the Salt Lake City Fire Department. And during his residency down in New Orleans, he was given a book on essentially because of the amount of patients that he was seeing in the ED in the hospital in New Orleans, they couldn't see every person all the time. So he, he had a little notebook that he carried around and to triage the patients that he was seeing. He got back to Salt Lake City and saw that 
All the ambulances are going out red lights and siren. Not all patients were created equal. And he thought, well, why can't we adopt the same concept, the call taking? And that is actually the origin of how the medical priority dispatch system started, was with Dr. Jeff Clausen taking a concept that was used in an emergency, a very, very busy emergency department, New Orleans, Louisiana, and applying that to pre-hospital care. And since then, it's grown. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, we are the International Academy of Emergency Dispatch does provide a standard of care. We've grown to like 55, we're 55 different countries, 56 different countries now. We're using 27 to 28 different um, translations, uh, language translations. We even have cultural translations. We have like a U.S. English, a U.K. English, an Australasia English, um, different versions of French, one in Canada, one in, one in France. So, you know, so we're, we understand that there is culturalization that's required, but all cultures, every culture is different. Um, so it's not a, that type of a strict protocol. It's an adoptive culturalization protocol, but the questions and the sequencing of questions remain the same because that is based on evidence. So Jerry, could you just, for people very much like myself, could you maybe just speak to the difference between a system uh, which is pro-QA um, and uh, maybe AMPDS or MPDS. Could you, could you maybe just break those two terms down, unpack right. them uh, for, for people? Yeah, it is somewhat confusing, and it's pretty simple when you stop to think about it, but a lot of people don't stop thinking about it. Uh, the medical priority dispatch system is actually the protocol itself. Pro-QA is the computerization of that protocol. So in other words, when... Somebody is, when a call taker at London Ambulance or Scottish Ambulance Service is looking at the screen when they're typing in the questions, they're typing in to the AMPDS or the medical priority dispatch system. But the software that's running behind that that allows those questions to pop up in front of them and the interfaces that's involved is ProQA. So that makes a lot of sense, actually. And, you know, there's, there is that kind of sequential um, movement through through the cards or indeed the computer screen. I'm going to just jump well, forward. That, 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 I think that's a good point. You just made a really interesting point, you know, because the medical priority dispatch system was cards, yeah. was a card set. And, you know, you can still walk into some dispatch centers and see the card set saying, setting up on a console. And when you flip through those cards, that's MPDS. The computerization of those cars now in a CAD is ProQA. So it's interesting from a resiliency perspective. I think they keep the cards in London because if they all the computers shut down, if there's a power outage or indeed the, there's there's a, a CAD system error, then they revert back to cards because you can rely on good old fashioned cards being in front of your face. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, one of our challenges, of course, is that. As we get more evidence behind the protocol, make changes to the protocols, it's harder to update the cards, uh, those cards says, but as something we're going back to, we kind of abandoned that for a little bit, which wasn't very popular to be honest with you. And we're now uh, bringing those cards sets back. We're not gonna update them with every small nuance, but they'll be the current version of uh, MPDS. So, Jerry, could you speak to the domains of dispatch, sort of the, the big four hard hitters being sort of 
the, the priority symptoms of maybe chest pain, difficulty in breathing, changes in levels of consciousness and serious hemorrhage. Those, those being maybe the jumping off um, uh, almost pathologies that you can then branch out and start to really start to um, triage and or identify patients with. Well, the initial question that we ask is, and it's a very specific question, to the point is, okay, tell me what happened. Even the word okay is in there. Um, and that is a very key question for us because we're really having the caller provide us with some type of a symptom that we can then begin that triage process. But again, using ProQA to computerization, it becomes a series of very fast yes, no, so that we can differentiate, for instance, between chest pain, shortness of breath, cardiac arrest. In fact, you know, obviously cardiac arrest is the one we need to get to first. And it's just two simple questions, frankly, is the patient breathing, is the patient, you know, patient caused patient breathing. No, no. And it's, they're off, they're immediately into telephone CPR instructions. No other questions are going to be asked. Um, Chest pain and shortness of breath are a little bit trickier, you know. Um, chest pain, not so much because it's relatively straightforward when someone is having chest pain versus abdominal pain. And the protocol is, uh, is relatively quick to be able to differentiate that acuity. I'll be honest with you, shortness of breath is still one that we struggle with. Um, and it's probably the one that your listeners are going to go, oh, yeah, we know what he's talking about because of the fact that we're still, they're still responding to some pretty low acuity. I'll just be honest, pretty low acuity, shortness of breath calls. And we have, you know, we have, there's been study after study after study done to be able to do, figure out a hierarchy of questions within that protocol to be able to discern what is a high acuity shortness of breath versus a low acuity shortness of breath? And we still haven't found it because you and I both know that hyperventilation is low acuity. We also know that a high acuity shortness of breath is someone who's going to die if we don't get there. And it's just figuring that out. And um, so we make every effort to use every bit of evidence we can find to be able to ensure that the first question is asked, identify, identify the highest acuity patients. And that's where it all stops. Once that patient is identified as high acuity, no more questions are asked. And we're making sure that resource is being dispatched. I think it's really important as well that, and I think there's definitely a prompt within the call taker that they do inform that there is resources en route and it doesn't delay them speaking because, you know, there's that impending sense that look, just get me help. And, and, and that, that psychological reassurance is, 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 is key, but also Jerry, it's just really interestingly um, um, around what you were saying around just there is always outliers, isn't there? Because, you know, there might be someone with brittle asthma that doesn't necessarily have a wheeze or that it's not it's not easy to pick up. And, you know, it and sounds like a panic attack or sounds like a just someone who is psychologically in distress. But, you know, there's, there's so many different variations of a pathology. It's so hard to fit an algorithm or indeed a questioning tool to front load it to, to get an accurate diagnosis every time, I suppose. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, your listeners are going to know that our system is not 100% sensitive and specific. No system is going to be 100% sensitive and specific. You know, it's designed to be overly sensitive. It's designed to provide 
that patient the best care that we can provide them in a dispatch environment. And if that means that when the paramedic gets there, they're less acute, yeah, we can all live with that. It's the opposite that we can't live with. And that is that we haven't been overly sensitive and we get and the paramedic gets there and the patient's dead. And that's, you know, it's designed to be overly sensitive and designed to be risk averse for a reason. Jerry, could you speak to the compliance and the importance of compliance to pre-arrival instructions from the emergency call taker? So I heard a brief insight into some of these meetings about the semantics of, of what is said and how much, as you were saying earlier, how much attention is placed on the actual semantics, the actual language and words used in pre-arrival instructions. Could you, could you unpack that and speak to it? Yeah, one of the criticisms that we often receive is the protocol is too strict or too structured and you can't change it. And I can tell you that is not true. The fact is, is that when we build the protocol, we look at every bit of evidence from, for instance, the European Resuscitation Council, the American Heart Association, the Inter- ILCOR. We continually read, peer-reviewed journals like resuscitation, pre-hospital emergency care, pre-hospital disaster medicine, looking at what is the latest evidence that goes into, you know, a dispatch environment. Now, it is true that, you know, it's really interesting. Until lately, there haven't been that many articles, that much research done in dispatch. You know, you can, you know, the chain of survival concepts was founded in 1991, which really doesn't sound like that long ago. You know, yeah, about 20, about 30 years ago now, but, you know, until after that, nobody cared about dispatch, to be honest. So when we look at our protocol, my point is when we look at our protocol and look at how it's structured and what goes behind it, it isn't guesswork. It is a changing protocol that based on either evidence or cases, that are coming, you know, let's take London Ambulance Service is an absolutely superb ambulance service. It, you know, they're accredited center of excellence. They have a high volume of calls. And when they, when they speak, we listen because they know what's going on because they're using it and they're using it correctly. So when you talk about compliance, which was the origin of your question, I think, or the root of your question, when you have a service like London Ambulance Service, or the Welsh Ambulance Services Trust, or Northern Ireland, or Ireland, or they're all accredited centers of excellence, that means they're achieving a highly compliant call taking, which means that they are giving a very consistent quality of care in that dispatch environment. And that's important to for their patients because their patients are getting consistent care. I mean, it's not one patient getting this or one patient getting that. You know, they're they're using the protocol correctly. It's important for us that they're compliant because on every call there's data generated. And we can be able to tell from that data if there is an outcome that needs to be changed, but their input was right. How, do we, how can we address that at, uh, at the academy? So a highly compliant agency is incredibly invaluable because it provides us with data in which we can go back and 
look at our protocol either positively or negatively and look at the specificity and sensitivity. So, um, and from my perspective, being a past chief executive of two different EMS systems, I know what's going on in that dispatch center is the right thing to do, that they're treating, I mean, it, it is, they're treating those patients just like a paramedic treats those patients with the consistency that's going to provide a positive or potentially provide a positive outcome. It's interesting, actually. I think they did a, a study uh, in the UK putting paramedics at point of at point of call, and actually found no 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 greater accuracy from um, for, from qualified paramedics versus uh, uh, emergency call takers. I, I think there wasn't uh, there wasn't necessarily a higher higher accuracy in 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 triage or indeed in uh, signage for that patient as they as they move through the system which which speaks to 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 the point of of of, of that validity and reliability that you know apply application of tool gets were you saying it's, it's over 90 percent or indeed over 95 percent accuracy in uh, consistently over time it's actually the most difficult job in the in the whole in the whole control room probably in the whole ambulance service actually is the core taking uh, because what you're trying to do is realign lots of um disparate information which is non-sequential non-chronological into some kind of formulaic fashion and really start to get it down and you know you could just have to spend five or ten minutes listening to a whole variety of court of, of emergency call takers to think actually this is this is absolutely the most uh, challenging role within the ambulance service well i'm glad you said that because obviously i'm biased but going back to my days again as chief executive I I would still say I'm biased because of the fact that there's two things. Number one is that they're truly operating in a non-visual environment. They cannot see the call taker. They cannot see the scene. And so that's why it's really incumbent upon them to take emotional control of that caller, you know, and being able to discern some type of order out of chaos if there is, when there is chaos. And that leads to the second thing. When they pick up that phone, they have not a clue who's on the other line and what what, what that next call is. You know, I, I was amazed at, you know, again, referring to London Ambulance, but amazed at the number of obstetrics and deliveries that they do, you know, compared to a lot of our other systems. You know, so you've got, you know, it, or let's go to the tragedy that happened in the United States two days ago, you know, um, down in Texas. I mean, one second, that call taker may be picking up a 911 call for someone who's maybe sick or recovering from COVID. And the next call in is a, is a elementary school shooting. And they're expected to handle both of those. You know, I mean, it's an amazing job. It's an incredibly stressful job. It is not just an operator picking up a phone or whatever. You know, it, my hats are off to them. Jerry, just changing tack slightly, um, just looking at the uh, adage of, of uh, clinical input beyond the point of dispatch. So sort of coming back to either a silent or then an active interrogation. Um, could you speak to 
your your take on clinical inputs beyond beyond dispatch and or at what triage and dispatch um do you see added in it do you see do you see added value um and the reason i ask this question is because very much within the uk and as you'll be familiar we're moving to this clinical hub model whereby we have critical care paramedics in the control room we have nurses in the control room, end of life care nurses mental health nurses we have um um, um midwives in the control room we have gps in the control room it's all that point of call so we're actually getting this mdt this multidisciplinary team at point of call uh, you know beyond the 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 actual vitals of the address and the, some of the sequential information could you could you speak to that and your perspective on that well i think it's really important and i think those different having those different resources in a control room is going to do nothing but help you know, obviously, again, you've got to be able to identify that situation with that caller to be able to get it to the critical care paramedic or to get it to the midwife. And so we've got to get that right at the beginning on that call triage. But once we get it there, I think the fact that we're recognizing that more resources can be in the control room, an overall systemic approach in the control room. Yeah, I really think that's important. I mean, critical care paramedics in a control room can actually go down different paths of care that, you know, with with a patient, once they've been identified, the acuity level has been identified. Mental health is a huge problem. We all know that. You know, in the United States, they, you know, in the past it's been send the police. They're the only ones that can deal with it. The police can't deal with it. They're not trained to deal with it. They don't want to deal with it. You know, we've got to provide mental health professionals for mental health patients. And mental health in a control room or mental health professionals in a control room is a huge first step to be able to do that. Um, So, yeah, I think that having this type of team approach, especially in resource-limited environments, call volumes are going up. We know that worldwide. Um, you know, they dipped during COVID. The first the first months of COVID, we saw a drop in call volumes. People weren't calling. But we've now gone past the levels that we were at pre-COVID. So post-COVID, we're, we've got to be able to provide different alternatives, different services. And the call centers are, frankly, a natural place to do that. So listen, I fundamentally agree, actually, at point of call, because you're, you're right, redirection of, of demand um, and the demand profile is is ever increasing um, and bringing that to a place where by, yeah, we're not thinking about the historical trip to A&E anymore. And yeah, so the hear and treat, see and treat pathways, but the multidisciplinary team in the, so, so actually what you're doing is bringing the specialist to the patient over the phone and even i guess in the future in the not too distant future maybe even a, a zoom call um or indeed a a audio visual call right. to 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 yeah to to expedite care or to expedite the information that that that, that patient patient needs because as you're familiar you've just come back from wales uh, the Welsh Ambulance Service, and indeed, you're in the southeast of of, of the UK right now. That that you know, across the country, uh, the exponential rise in in bed block and in congestion within the hospitals and within the emergency departments is a real a real issue. You know, we uh, it's not uncommon to have four, six, eight hour waits within within the emergency department, which is a massive issue because, as you just said, you know, the the demand is 
ever increasing, but the resources are stuck in one place. So it, it, it's, it's, it's looking at that patient journey and bringing it forward, bringing, bringing everything forward um, to, to point of call. Your media here is pretty interesting. Let's just put it that way. And, you know, I see the ambulance services across the UK getting blamed for these wait times, but it's not them. It's the hospitals, you know, I mean, they, how do you offload, you know, they don't, they're not allowed to offload patients. I mean, I, I don't know what I would do if I was the chief executive here. I mean, I actually don't know what I would do, you know, simply because of the fact it's not their fault. So Jerry, could you speak to the nuances of, of dispatch that, that maybe clinicians take for granted um, in, in, in day-to-day uh, life as an emergency medical dispatcher? Because I, getting to know them, they have got an intricate and a difficult job uh, in and of itself. Could you maybe just speak to some of the nuances that you're aware of? Again, you know, as we were talking about earlier, they are operating in a non-visual environment and they absolutely do not know what that next caller is, you know, there's kind of a cliche that they're going to be interacting with someone who's having the worst day of their life. And it, it is a cliche, but it's also true. You know, when someone, nobody wants to call 999 or 911. That's, you know, this isn't, this isn't on their checklist of things to do for the day. If to, to have to call for nine. And so obviously the person is going to be stressed. And obvious, just as obviously, the call taker has to be able to diffuse that situation and make some semblance out of it. Unlike paramedics, you know, and again, I was a paramedic and I've been chief executive, so I know the stresses that, paramedic, that the paramedics are operating under in the field. But unlike a paramedic, typically now in the call centers, there's no downtime. Um, you know, once one call ends, there's another call waiting. They're looking at screens right now in which there's calls that are actually waiting to be dispatched. You know, so, you know, so they're, they don't have a resource to be dispatched. So when you stop thinking, when you start thinking of the pressures that they're consistently under, um, it is a very, very difficult environment. And, you know, it's one that just like the paramedics in the field, we need to be aware of the mental stressors that they're under and make sure that we're taking care of them because, Maybe it's even more than a nuance, uh, Ian. Maybe it's, uh, it's because it's a real deal. I mean, they are constantly taking those calls. There's no, there's no relief, and so we've got to be, we got to take care of them. So, Jerry, could you speak to the developments of so the breathing diagnostic um, that has evolved at point of call um, and how sensitive it is? Because I, as you, as you were saying before, it's this it's about eliciting that vital information um, nice and nice and early. And you know, just having that 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 breathing diagnostic right count 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 the times of breathing. You know, it's I find that really helped actually just even listening under silent interrogation. Could you could you speak to the introduction introduction of that and how well it's been received? No, I think you just described it very, very well. You know, the fact of the matter is first and foremost, if there's any question the patient is breathing, we go directly to the cardiac arrest uh, protocol. You know, and there's so many uh, there's so many different descriptors of gasping for air and snoring and you know when people are calling in and again when in doubt just go for the cardiac arrest but if there is a situation where they're 
potentially breathing or, you know, or whatever, that, that tool is proven to be very, very valuable to make that assessment as quickly as possible if there is some type of irregularity or regular breathing. So it's really helped. You know, we that tool, we've used that tool. We've got a stroke tool uh, too, but, you know, but, you know, lifting both arms and, you know, so we've embedded tools in the protocols themselves in some of these difficult situations be able to have that call taker potentially assess what's going on with the uh, with the patient. So to your point earlier, Jerry, around, uh, you know, the, the, the difficulties of the role of the emergency call dispatcher and call taker, um, and to your point around multiple patient instances like the other day in Texas, like we've seen in London on multiple occasions, could you, could you speak to the evolution of, uh, of dispatch that you've seen when when the call when the dispatch is presented with a, an MCI so mass casualty incident um, could you could you speak to sort of your roadmap of how you've seen it develop from a dispatch perspective? Well, I think this is where we really talk about the two components of dispatch: the call taking and the dispatcher, because of the fact that when we we've been talking up to now pretty much is what's going on on the call taking part. You know, the other part of it is the actual controlling of the resources and the dispatcher. You know, I mean, back when, let's just say I was younger, okay? Um, the fact is that, you know, there wasn't a lot of these incidents, frankly. And, you know, the call taker could pretty much handle the call and then the dispatcher would dispatch a unit or resource and, it was done, but now when we're talking about major incidents and going back to what you just mentioned with London, with the terrorist attacks in London, the the multiple mass shootings we've had, you know, we've had three in the last, what, two weeks, I think, something like that. And it's really sad that you can't even keep, you can't keep track of them anymore. I mean, it's just sad. But yeah, I mean, I think the fact that the matter is, is being able to control those resources and understand what resources you have and being able to pull them out of almost out of the air to have a, some type of semblance of a coordinated response is absolutely magical in these in these dispatch centers, you know. And 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 it presents challenges, I think, because the information from my experience changes and changes and changes again because the the initial information might be a road traffic collision, but then it becomes apparent that there was a malicious element to that. Um, and or I think certainly with seven seven, it was a power surge initially. It was it was spoken of as a power surge, and so you know, and then the the evolution of, of patient numbers changes, and I think all of these challenges really, like you said you're flying blind so you haven't got the mental model and they say a picture speaks a thousand words but you you know you haven't got that picture to articulate the subtle nuances of what is actually um unfolding and so it's it, it is really challenging i think to to be able to resource the scene appropriately you're only as good as the information you're given um and certainly when we do major incident training we say you know regular methane reports regular a regular sequential report because because the information on the ground changes uh, and you're only as good as the, as the information you're gathering back to the dispatch room because otherwise you're the rate limiting step on scene. And actually what needs to happen is the eyes and ears need to be almost back in the control room so that they can get the appropriate responses to, to the front line. 
you know, you're really right because, you know, it's been in, in listening to incidents, which, you know, some of the more complex incidents, it's been fascinating because a couple of them I listened to, there was only a single call received and the number of casualties was actually underestimated. And it wasn't until the, the paramedics arrived at the scene that they realized that they had a multi-casualty incident. And then they had to go back, as you just said, to dispatch to be able to re almost reformulate a plan and to get an incident command system going. And so, yeah, it's, it, it is a two-way street, or I guess another way, it's a system. And that's what, you know, from my perspective, that's what it comes down to. Emergency medical services system. And all too often we forget dispatch, but this whole thing of having a component of dispatch, a component of the field, a component of whatever, it's, it takes a system to put this all together. Absolutely. And, it, you know, as, as has been said on other podcasts, it takes a system to save a life, actually. It's, right. it's never one person. It's a, it, is, it is a system. Just, so just before we come into land, Jerry, I just wanted to bring it back to something you said earlier around uh, mental health, which I think is key, and caring for the carers. Because one thing I learned, actually, from, from being in the dispatch room, having probably about a fifth or sixth of my shifts in the dispatch room dispatching colleagues, was that actually... It, it, an underspoken or under-identified area of PTSD is actually within the control room because it's actually heavily traumatic to not be able to see the patient, but to but to be privy to the chaos and privy to the emotion over the phone, and and then and then the phone line goes dead. Like you said, after after that call is over, and the, the, the next chain of the next chain of the of the system kicks in, which is the face to face, but that doesn't alleviate or necessarily offset that truly visceral and traumatic event in 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 the call taker or indeed if the dispatchers come down and, and started to do some call taking if there's a backlog but i i certainly my anecdotal experience is that that is truly can be truly traumatic actually and traumatizing uh for 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 that individual and 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 caring for the carers is almost what well, is as vitally important at point of call as it is for the paramedics well, you know, and there's another one more component of all that, you know, that, uh, what we're talking about here when we're, and that's the socialization, you know, but I mean, the fact is, even if you're on a really bad call, a, a paramedic has another paramedic to talk to after the call's over, you know, I mean, so at least you've got this team of two or three sometimes where the call taker but dispatcher doesn't have anybody else to talk to i mean there isn't anybody else that even in a very brief time they can debrief the debrief you know because of the fact again they're in this essentially isolated environment of one taking another call so there's no like we, we talked about this earlier there's no downtime but there's also no downtime with anybody else and we've really really got to change our approach to mental health with uh, with the call taker because it's incredibly stressful, incredibly stressful. And just you made a, you made a great point there, Jerry, about debriefing actually. And I think I think the fundamental components of a high performing team is about including the call taker and or dispatcher. So one of the things we used to try and do is incorporate the critical care paramedic in the control room within the debrief. But actually at point of call, including the call taker and taking that time out in, in a very difficult call, might, albeit a P 
pediatric or an adult acute uh, traumatic call or otherwise yeah, from point of call because you're right there's a there's a significant burden and 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 psychological load placed right at the front end and and so there's almost hopefully that incorporation within the debrief some some vital information really and and, and just vital vitally sort of feeling part of that team which is which is which is necessary Jerry, as we come into land on the conversation, I, could I just get you to speak to some of the sort of fundamental take-home messages in in your approach to dispatch that you'd like to mention for listeners? Well, I think again, my take-home messages would be that they are part of a team, they are part of a system. That you know, the paramedics aren't going to get dispatched if a call isn't taken. And, you know, and just remember the call takers and the dispatchers are doing everything humanly possible to get it right, you know, and what we're trying to do is provide them with the protocols to get it right. Is it going to be right 100% of the time? No, but they're doing the best they can. I, I guess the take home, I'll go back to something I said earlier, where people taking care of people. Listen, I just really value your time. Um, and what we'll do is we'll put a, a link to your to your bio at the bottom of the uh, the show notes and any any further resources. But uh, I just want to thank you for the last hour, Jerry. Um, I've benefited from speaking with you and and just uh, just having a bit of your time. It's been an absolute privilege. You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network.